Welcome to the For Friends and Family podcast. I'm Gavin, and I am talking today with gin and tonic drinking Murray Barnett. Hi, Murray. Hello. Can you hear the tinkling? <laughs> You're over in the UK, um, in Hampstead area, and near London. Let's talk sports. I just want to get right to it. You are a sports industry veteran. You must be following things closely. You're at Murray Barnett um, on Twitter, I see, and I see there's lots of things going on there. It is currently 10.34 a.m. in Los Angeles on Tuesday, March 31st. There are 823,000 totally confirmed cases. There are 40,000 deaths, and there's 174,000 that have recovered. Has anyone died in the sports business that you know of yet? Is there, has, there, have, have, has that really blown up? That's a good question. There are a few people that I don't know personally, but uh, are various sort of administrators, and they generally fall into that bracket of people that were had some underlying you know health issue prior to that. But there are a couple of people that I'm aware of who work in the wider industry that, like I said, I, I didn't know personally, but that have uh, have passed away, unfortunately. Wow. Um, no, have there been any young players across all of the sports that you sort of like, you know, rugby and football and Formula One and stuff? There's, the, there's been no one really young yet. I mean, young people are getting it and dying from it. And there are people that are not, you know, don't have underlying health conditions is what we're hearing. But I haven't, you know, I haven't been very close to it, but I haven't seen anyone like sort of the top athletes and none of them either that have it or have died from it. No, I mean, there's tons of soccer players that have been diagnosed with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I do think uh, it, it appears that if your immune system is generally pretty strong, mm -hmm. that you're less likely to suffer from it uh, very severely. So, you know, I, I haven't sort of checked the details of some of the younger cases of people that have passed away. But my guess would be that there is some underlying you know, issue uh, either in terms of their ability to get decent health care mm -hmm. or that that you know there was a, there were other factors rather than it just being the virus by itself the big story obviously that the tokyo olympics have been the 2020 tokyo olympics have been moved to 2021 they're still going to be called the 2020 olympics how's the ripples through the sports industry there have you been talking with people what what, what do they feel yeah I, I think there's a couple there's a couple of aspects to it i mean for one uh 2021 is going to be a mega year for sport with the amount of events which are now being pushed back into there and plus the things that were already on in 2021, it's going to be an incredible year, which is going to be great for fans, but has potential issues in terms of uh, fixture congestion, if you want to call it that, um, and issues in relation to some sponsors and so on in terms of their ability to activate against all of those things. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest uh, sort of factor here and there's been lots of talk about oh should, should it be moved a long time ago and so on but for those people that have done business in japan it, it's very very difficult in terms of trying to make sure it works culturally to try and allow the japanese to save as much face as, as possible in terms of moving uh moving the games which i think even they knew were going to have to be moved but in Japan, you know, everything is about saving face and uh, and being what seen that to mean be the one making the decision. So I think, you know, that's forced uh, – it's been a much slower process. But the thing is it's a little bit like an oil tanker. It's once it changed, it changed very quickly. So, you know, the decision from moving it from 20 to 21 – 
and then actually being able to announce the dates and the agreement of all the federations is very, very quick. So that initial decision may have been slow, but every subsequent decision is going to be made very quickly. Let's talk about the saving face for the Japanese, because in sport, uh, what would have, how would they, the, the coronavirus obviously is something that's out of their control. And I, having lived in Japan, I did see this, you know, this Japanese pride and saving face and making sure that no one's upset. How, how did that play out to, because I don't really understand exactly how that would happen, you know, from a sports perspective, how they would need to save face when it's clearly out of their control. I think it's more about who's making the decision okay. and not having the decision thrust upon them and them being seen to be the ones that are the, the drivers behind making that decision and them being I see. the sort of the Japanese government. And uh, I think that there were, well, I know that there are a bunch of stakeholders involved and, you know, it's, it's a $10 billion decision to move it to 2021. That's really? how much money they'll probably end up losing uh, based on the, uh, well, I say losing, that's how much, um, the cost of the games it was to them uh, and, and that includes a fairly hefty amount of profit and so you know, they're also thinking about well how can they best put that forward into 2021 and you know it does create some issues I actually think that they'll come out of it fine um, I think I think it, it's a it's a bigger issue for things like the um, uh, the IAAF the International Athletics Federation have their world championships in Eugene, Oregon in 2021. And they've had to, uh, I'm not sure if they've announced that they're canceling them or, or moving them, but uh, moving the date, but they're going to have to move because the Olympics has now moved to 2021. So, you know, the knock-on impact it has on a lot of the federations financially, as well as from an organizational perspective is pretty significant. And there's a lot of the same sponsors, right? So they don't want, they don't have to sort of double up. So sponsors now, like, let's talk about the contracts. How would the contracts change so if you have a contract is this a force to majeure or like on the sports business side like just to move the games we're all like okay just move the games but i mean you know sponsors have you know outlined their entire marketing budgets for this that you know everything is very regulated sometimes years and years in advance sometimes 10 years in advance so a small move we all think in the general public is like ah no big deal but for you guys in the sports industry i think you understand the weight of it so how are the how how, how does this come under a, a, in a, in a from a contract standpoint cuz sponsors are just going to say well i don't need to be in two places i'll just be in one well, we're kind of in the twilight zone here, right? So this isn't something that anybody's ever had to really deal with to this degree before, except maybe the First and Second World Wars. And even in that situation, uh, the, certainly in the sports world, you, you didn't have anything like the same level of sort of uh, in commercial involvement in the sporting environment. So I, what I've heard from the people that I've spoken to on both sides of the fence is that there seems to be a, a great desire to as much as possible, leave the contract in the drawer and try and find what's the right solution for the sport and for the sponsor. The activation budgets, it, 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 that's the, you're right to pinpoint that because that's the tough area where you're activating a number of different events in the same year. But I think in actual fact, everybody's trying to behave in a way of, uh, of trying to just make the most out of, out of this bad situation. And in some ways, you know, when you think about something like the Olympics and that clashing with other sponsor-led events in 2021, I think people aren't even thinking that far ahead at the moment. They're just trying to get through a little bit like, you know, what's the situation today, tomorrow, next month, rather than 
trying to focus too much on whether activation is going to happen in 2021 and how they're going to divide the dollars then because you know nobody really knows exactly what that's going to look like and you know heaven forbid that some of the olympic partners may not even be around if this continues for that much longer so you know that, that i think there are a lot bigger things at play than worrying about activation in 21 right now so um you know it's it's the early early days right now and um but you know in the sports world it's about large groups of people like 40 50 100,000 people getting together have you heard any rumblings about how this is going to change in like out of maybe what's happening in China is and any sport up and running again in China or is it is it are we we're, we're it seems like to me as a layperson that we're just going to be in lockdown for four or five months pretty much the summer's a write off um, and then maybe in the fall some things might come back maybe but putting together large groups of people without you know people being able to be tested or certified or making sure that there isn't one person in that entire crowd who has the virus or because they don't know they're contagious what what are you what are you your speculation is fine but also have you heard any rumblings about what how this is going to change well there have been rumors that the premier league want to start as early as may on on finishing the 2020 se- uh, 2019 2020 season without uh, without audiences possibly behind cl- yeah possibly behind closed doors uh-huh. which seems to be unlikely i would think um, just Why? because I, I don't think that that's going to fly uh, in terms of the broadcasters. And I think also it's a little bit self-interesting, it's self-interested in the sense that they're doing it to save the broadcast contracts rather than because it's the right, you know, what, what they really oh, want to do. Okay. And I think you've got to start, I think we talked about this when we spoke, because, you know, you look at something like the NBA and Adam Silver, who's, a, you know, in my opinion, a kind of quite a visionary leader of a sport. And he's starting with, you know, what's the right thing to do? And then backing into what's the, you know, how does that affect the commercials of the sport rather than uh, things like EPL, which seem to be at the moment trying to figure out how they can maxim, you know, minimize their losses or maximize the remaining, uh, remaining uh, sort of amount of time that they can have in the season rather than trying to think about the human aspect first you know my my very personal speculation when you talk about sort of events is is twofold number one is it, events which are country specific so if you look at nfl or you look at premier league or la liga in spain or whatever it is mm-hmm. those kind of leagues and events will be i think staged in, in, in or sorry um stepped so you'll start off with a relatively small audience and then uh, of people that are allowed to attend and then it will grow and grow and grow until you can get to some level of capacity right and, and that reason that that will be because there will be some kind of screening at events um you know you, you lived in japan you, you'll know what it's like when you first turn up at narita or haneda in in tokyo and you actually walk through this area where they kind of point these kind of laser guns at you to check to see what kind of temperature you've got mm-hmm. and i think that there's a chance that at all sporting events you'll, you'll see something similar to that where you know there will be screenings uh, and anybody that's showing any kind of abnormal reading won't be allowed in the stadium and and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and even so i think that they'll be and people should be very cautious about going to these events to start off with you know interestingly enough there are a bunch of events which kind of lend themselves more to perhaps not having an audience and those are the sort of the darts the snookers the kind of you know 
gymnastics, swimming, you know, indoor events, mm-hmm. you know, generally speaking, are, are, are more conducive to not having an audience. Um, and I think that there'll be some interesting developments in how atmospheres are created when audiences are limited or, or excluded. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, it's, it is, as I said earlier, it's kind of like the Twilight Zone. It's nobody really knows exactly what this is going to look like. But all I can say is that I'm pretty certain that sporting events post coronavirus are going to be very, very different to events pre coronavirus. And I think that that has both positive and negatives. You know, one of the things that I've heard recently when, you know, talking to friends in the business has been the fact that no longer will fans be taken for granted in stadium or not. Because, you know, up until now, it was like, hey, they're going to turn up whatever we do, however we behave, whatever kind of product we serve up. And I think that, you know, coming out of this, one positive will be that fans will have a much bigger say in how events are staged and their considerations will be taken uh, much more seriously by by the, the owners. I, and I think, you know... <sighs> I think that the fans, do you think that before this, the fans felt that they were sort of not really taken seriously? I think they were always assumed that they would always be there. Yeah. And I think largely sport is price price elastic in the sense that, you know, people would pay for whatever it is, a 12 buck hot dog at MSG because there wasn't anything else. And, you know, they were constantly taking it because they wanted to go and see the sports that they loved. I mean, you know, what's been interesting has actually been a recent trend, especially in the U.S. against that kind of um, kind of uh, yeah, belief that, that, that yeah, there's like... a bottomless pit. So you look at like Mercedes-Benz or, uh, Benz Stadium in Atlanta, or the home of the Falcons, and you know they've started regulating much better what the prices are for food and beverage. And Tottenham Hotspur in, in North London is also doing the same in terms of trying to encourage people to come early and stay later by making it a, a one more hospitable experience but also you know a better priced product and i think you'll see an acceleration of that after this where you know it won't be taken for granted that people will just pay whatever for for tickets and for food and beverage and merchandise yeah because the you know the, the price gouging seems to be the thing and i did see that documentary on the falcons and tottenham hotspur about how they decided to make the like they looked at all the prices around the stadium for things that were being sold by other restaurants and they matched those prices rather than being three times higher and they said that they said in initial experiments that the actual sales went up because people did come early and they did come and stay later they made a day of it as opposed to you know eating and drinking beforehand just to get in the stadium and then not doing anything in the stadium and then running back because they didn't want to pay you know fifteen dollars for a beer whereas you know down the street uh which i which i thought was interesting it's it's always interesting about the the fans do you have any insight into the esports world like have you my understanding is that you know because we had a couple of esports clients that it's just gone through the roof like it's 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 really become a big deal now like everyone is online everyone is gaming and and you know they seem to be the ones that are really benefiting by the covid if there is any beneficial beneficial area i mean they can't have the big giant stadiums um of people full watching people playing gaming but it's an online uh scenario so twitch seems to be doing very well anyone gaming any of the gaming uh you know teams seem to be doing well there's nobody better at telling you how brilliant 
e-gaming and e-sports is doing during this time than the people involved in that <laughs> there are a lot of people that have made some very very big bets in in uh, in that business and they will uh, in my opinion they overestimate what it is uh, un- undoubtedly it's it's become a very important sector of the sports industry if you want to call it sports mm-hmm. um and I think that they are definitely making some hay while there is no live sports, and so they should. But I still think it's relatively uh, a relatively niche product. And again, we could probably have a whole separate discussion about what is esports, because I think when you look at them having a virtual Formula One or a virtual NASCAR, mm-hmm. you know, I saw that virtual NASCAR got a million viewers on Fox Sports One, whatever it was, a week or so ago. Now, that for esports is pretty good that for any kind of live sports is pretty poor so you know there's still a massive gap between between that and i have no no doubt that if you know espn put a you know a madden tournament on uh tomorrow that it would actually rate reasonably well but it rate reasonably well in the context that nobody has anything else to watch Mm -hmm. um where i think it esports is interesting is actually the actually the ability for real athletes to build their own brands mm-hmm. so you've seen a number of formula one drivers who have taken to esports both the official f1 esports series but also some other events mm-hmm. and it's been a fantastic opportunity for them to connect directly with their fan base and i think you'll find some people coming out of this period in different sports who are much more uh have had a chance to be much more exposed to the general public and be much more relatable to the general public than they were previously for for whatever reason and you know those reasons could be as simple as you know most motor racing drivers wear a helmet or that Mm -hmm. you know uh, i saw uh chris hoy who's a you know british cyclist he was um the most famous British cyclist um, who um, was taking part in an esports event. And again, for him, that's exposing him to a whole bunch of different people that never probably would have watched anything he did, he did in cycling. And I think that's going to be the mm-hmm. really interesting thing is, is how individual athletes and potentially teams as well find different and interesting ways to build their brand during this time. And, you know, I, I, I think that it's easy to talk about it. It's sounding very negative that, athletes or teams should take advantage of this uh, of this period but I, I don't think that doing good and building your brand are necessarily mutually exclusive things mm-hmm. and there is a chance to sort of provide entertainment and do something useful and build your brand at the same time or even to do something that's for the social good in terms of some of the charitable things that you've seen teams and athletes doing um the fact that they benefit from doing those kind of things because they're exposed in the media or whatever, that's, that, that, that to me is, is absolutely fine. My last question for you as we wind down here is that, you know, because I'm just going to go to F1 because I thought, are, are there, like, would there be any situation in which all the F1 drivers had a closed, you know, um, Formula One, you know, if they played the F1 game together and drove as teams, and then you would have like different technical teams and trying to get that advantage. It's almost like you could take it online. It exposes them to the fact that I understand that there is a kid who is an unbelievable F1 driver on, on the game, and he could possibly beat any of the top F1 drivers. Is this something that, I mean, I've looked around and I haven't seen anyone doing it, but it seems like to me is like, why not just move F1 online and have 
have the driver sit in, you know, completely, you know, you've seen some of those ones on Instagram where people have built these unbelievable little, you know, cars that, that, that the screens are in front of them. Would something like that happen or no? There's been a lot of talk about that. And I think that F1 is trying to get that off the ground. Mm -hmm. The, the, um, there are a few impediments to that. I think, firstly, some of the drivers are worried about being embarrassed. Yeah. You know, to a certain degree, it's fine to 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 go out on a on a proper circuit in a proper car and get beat because you know you kind of say that's what I've trained to do, and yeah. you know I, there's somebody out there that's better than me or that's got a better car than me. They're not all necessarily trained to be online drivers, yeah. and I think that whilst the skill set is somewhat similar it's not the only factor yeah uh, there is also the complexity of the game which although the game from a graphics perspective is very good the 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 cars are not really differentiated so when you actually race a williams in the current formula one game mm -hmm. it's not really dissimilar to racing the ferrari in the formula one game yeah um it, it's the 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 the, the the, the complexity of the different setups and so on mm -hmm. is just not there yet. And part of that is because it's driven to be a casual gaming thing rather than a professional gaming yeah. kind of uh, outfit. And I don't know that they could code it quickly enough to, to be able to sort of make it something where you could genuinely say the McLaren performs like a McLaren, the Williams performs like a Williams. And not only that, you know, is in addition to having you know lando norris drive the mclaren mm -hmm. you've also got the technicians sitting behind it making the adjustments to the setup mm. that would be the same as how they would affect in real time if you see what i mean it, it, the, sim the simple version is it's just it, it's just not it, it's it's a great game but it's just not the depth of complexity to give it a real feel but i, I still think that for, even from a just a general entertainment perspective there's a there's a great opportunity to get even if it's just half the drivers on the grid doing it but you know well, I would, you I would, imagine what i was thinking Lewis hamilton you've got nothing you've got nothing to win. nothing to gain by well, I mean, being in an e-championship from my standpoint is i thought you'd make it a completely closed environment right it was only be f1 drivers only f1 teams and it's like each team has the same thing. They all have like it's not we're not allowing people who who are gamers and that's all they've done. It's only the F1 drivers. It's only the constructors teams and they would come together and they would be on an F1 and, and other people could watch it, but they couldn't be a part of it. And people could say, well, I can drive faster than, you know, Daniel Ricardo uh, on the F1 game. Who cares? This is now an environment where you assume that everyone because I know they all the drivers play the games, right? And then it would all be the same um, it, rather than letting in new people. Then they could, you know, then they could, you know, have the they could work with the, you know, EA games to tweak the cars to allow people. Have, I mean, you, they would bring in coders. They would have a setup. You know, their setups would be different. There'd be a whole set of new rules. It would just be, you know, if, if, the, if the F1 season is going to go away, it would that would be a great behind the scenes documentary. That, that just seemed to me is that make it keep it closed but just for f1 but don't let anyone else in but it's just the drivers you still have two drivers per team you still have a car you still have your constructors now you have coders that are going to be able to tweak the games which we know is happening online already um etc i just i just thought it would be really interesting but anyway i don't want to cut into uh, your I, mean, I mean you're i mean you're right but i mean it was so when i was at the nba it was the same issue with the slam dunk competition is that after jordan won the slam dunk competition and whenever it was I mean, I don't think he ever took part after he won the first time. And the answer was because 
if you're one of the top top players in the NBA, you've got nothing to to gain and everything to lose by taking part in that. And it's the same with the Formula One esports competition, right? So, if you are Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, you've got everything to lose and nothing to gain by taking part in it. And if you are, you know, Nicholas Latifi or, you know, Lando Norris, you've got everything to gain because you're an unproven talent that sits bottom of the table um, and it only looks good if you take part. Wow, you're, you're really breaking up at the end there, but um, uh, we, we caught most of it. I really appreciate you taking time out of your gin and tonic to have the conversation with me, and I'll check in with you next week. But always insightful, uh, great discussion. Thanks, Maria. I really appreciate it. Great to talk. Catch you soon.